0: You know, we've talked about how to process, how to pray when, when others hurt you or when your body turns against you, when your mind turns against you, when, when you hurt others, but now we're hitting when God seems to be the problem, when you feel forsaken by God himself. So yeah, the big kahuna today, and we'll be in Psalm 88 But before we get into Psalm 88, I want to talk to you a little bit about stories. You know, we as human beings, we are wired for storytelling. We love stories. And we like our stories to have a plot that makes sense to us. And all plots have basically the same structure. And if you didn't know this, that's okay. You knew it internally and enjoyed it. But typically a plot goes like this. You start with exposition. So the, the concept, the premise is introduced, and then you hit a conflict. And then what you see is the rising action. And then at the top of the rising action in any plot is the climax. And then you have a falling action. The resolution of the story is happening, but things are still going on, and then finally you get the French word, denouement, the resolution. Everything's tied together, uh, and you have the end of the story. That's basically every single plot. Every single story has those elements. I'll give you an example. You know, I just showed, uh, we just showed our daughters the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe cartoon from 1979. It's on YouTube, and that's it. Horrible quality, but I mean, the video quality is horrible, but the movie is amazing. Uh, I grew up with it, so I'm biased. But basically, Narnia, as far as the plot goes like this, exposition. Four English siblings are sent to the countryside during World War II. While they're playing hide-and-go-seek on a boring, rainy day, the youngest sibling, Lucy, finds a magical world in the back of a closet called Narnia. You guys know this. It turns out, though, in this magical land called Narnia, four humans are needed. They're needed to sit on the throne and to fulfill a prophecy that will end the reign of a wicked witch who has put the land under an eternal winter where it's never Christmas. That sounds horrible. But when Lucy returns through the closet, through the wardrobe, her siblings don't believe her. Because, of course, they go and check the back of the wardrobe. And there's no magical land of Narnia there. There's just the back of a wardrobe. So then the conflict happens when Edmund, the next oldest sibling, finds Narnia himself alongside Lucy. And he experiences all that she has experienced. But while Lucy is off having tea with the fawn, Mr. Tumnus, Edmund meets the wicked witch who charms him with Turkish delight, an old delectable snack from Europe that is actually horrible. (laughs) But he loves it, and he wants more. And so he kind of falls for the wicked witch's schemes. And then the rising action happens when all of the siblings discover Narnia finally together. And they're all in Narnia together, but Edmund slips out the back door of the beaver's house and he links up with the wicked witch and betrays them all. It's horrible. In the meantime, there are rumors circulating of Aslan, the lion, who's a wild lion, but he's also the lord of the whole region. He's come back over the sea to save Narnia from the wicked witch's reign. And then the climax happens when Aslan presents himself to the wicked witch in exchange for the life of Edmund, the betrayer, the traitor. And she thinks she's won. She thinks she will now be able to rule Narnia forever with Aslan the Great dead. She kills him on the stone table. But then the next morning, crack. The stone table breaks. And Aslan the lion is resurrected from the dead according to the laws of the deeper magic that are at work. That's the climax. And the falling action is Aslan coming, destroying the wicked witch forever, installing the four siblings as kings and queens of Narnia. And once a king and queen of Narnia, always a king and queen of Narnia. And then the denouement, the resolution. After many dozens, scores of years leading and ruling Narnia justly, the siblings are on a hunting party for fun. They're hunting a white stag, the very elusive prize that no one has been able to catch. And they stumble through the, the, the forest and then into the old bedroom through that same closet that they found Narnia with originally. Turns out no time has passed. Although they've lived dozens of years in Narnia, now they're the same age as kids back in the countryside of England during World War II. It's a great story. That's just my little Narnia pitch there. But most of us like it when stories have a happy resolution. We like it when we see the climax and it's a good one. Good wins. And then the falling action and the resolution is everything's being tied up and buttoned up in a happy way. That's what we like. Although some of us are weird and like sad endings. Right? Who here likes sad endings? You guys are weird. <laughs> but that's okay. You probably, your, your favorite book of the Bible is probably Ecclesiastes. <laughs> no, that's okay because... That's the world, too. We like to see the world actually reflected in our stories, but we all like resolution. That's why I loved the ending of Return of the King. Right? The ending was like a third of the movie. It just kept going on and on with these happy scenes of reunification and deliverance and smiles and celebration. Did you know? There's an extended version of Return of the King, three hours and 20 minutes. But here's something you didn't know unless you're a nerd. There's a four-hour and 20-minute extended version of Return of the King coming into theaters in two weeks, just for two days, for the 20th anniversary of Return of the King, all across the region. I booked up my tickets the other day. <laughs> April 13th and 19th. But we love that resolution. We love scene after scene of, oh, they go back to Hobbiton and things are good again. Oh, they get reunited with Gandalf. Oh, everything is happy again because we've gone through the ringer. You know, cliffhangers are okay when when you just have to wait another year for the next season of Stranger Things or whatever. That's fine. You can wait a year. But cliffhangers, for cliffhangers' sake, no thank you. I'll take resolution any day of the week. So at some point in the story, we want a resolution. We want things to be buttoned up. Life is the same way. You know, we might look back on seasons of difficulty, And we we might see them after they're all resolved and see the value of them. Wow, I went through a really tough time, but look who I am because of it. Look how God showed up because of it. But the appreciation of looking back on those times only proves the idea that we want those times to end. We want to look back on them. We don't want to look at them as they're happening. Isn't it uncomfortable when you have the same prayer request every single week at home group or at a Bible study or with your with the people who pray for you? Yeah, it's the same thing. I, I need prayer for the same thing. It's the same thing. We don't want that. We want, we want the, the things in our lives that are causing us great difficulty to end. We want to give a praise report. We want to say, look how God showed up. We want to say, hey, that thing we were praying about, It worked out. We're wired for resolution. And we'd prefer to see it in the timing that we would prefer, which is now, which is soon. That's why we're studying Psalm 88 last in our study on lament. Every psalm of lament eventually turns to praise, except this one. Psalm 88 is the only psalm of lament that doesn't have a happy ending. It's a cliffhanger. It's one of the original cliffhangers. The last word of this psalm is literally darkness. That's the last word, darkness. And so I would hate for us to finish this five-week series and for you to get the idea that your opportunity for lament is over. Yeah, you had five weeks during Lent in 2023 to think about lament, to think about this way of prayer that that is giving these dark issues in your life over to God. But now that, that opportunity is over. you know, We're headed back into Philippians next week. It's all about joy. Like, you better have things figured out. No. I don't want you to come away from this with that idea. Instead, I hope you have come to realize that there is very little that you can't say to God. I hope you have, in some sense, discovered a new language of prayer. A new language that informs the very way you can communicate with the God who created you and loves you and can handle it. Our world is broken in oh so many ways. Our lives are broken in oh so many ways. Expressing the pain of those realities before God is not just helpful, but it's necessary. Especially if we're going to be fully ourselves, fully human before him. As we finish out this series, please don't feel like you need to be all buttoned up. You know, learning a new language takes practice. You know, I printed off a bunch of resources for lament on your own time. Take one. Take them. Sit with them. Set aside time to practice speaking this new language before God. It's not going to be overnight. If any of you have ever learned a new language, it's not overnight. It takes practice. It takes immersion. It takes regularity. So let's go ahead and read it. Psalm 88. All right, bear with me. I'm going to read the intro. Speaking of Lord of the Rings, it sounds like it's an Elvish at certain parts. Psalm 88, a song. A psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master. According to Mahalath Leonoth, a maskell of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that David says in Psalm 139 that though the darkness be dark, it's not dark to you, that even there you meet us. And so, Lord, I pray that this psalm would teach us something today. I pray that you would teach us something today. Lord, you must not be defensive. Lord, you must not be insecure to allow a song like this To be in your word. And so we want to learn, Lord. We want to know. We want to be able to embody the faith that can hold these sorts of words alongside your your goodness and your love. I thank you that you are that type of a God. So, so good so powerful, so sovereign, that you can take it. Lord, help us to know that we are beloved enough to speak everything that are, that's in our hearts to you. I pray that each person here would know how loved they are, that we can approach you because of Jesus in confidence, Thank you that that's the type of relationship you want to invite us into. Lord, help us to go deeper with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. You would think they would have kicked this dude out of the worship team, right? He's in the Sons of Korah worship team. He writes this little ballad. They're like, He-Man, the Ezraite, come on. You're a little too melancholy for this group. But no. It made it. It's there. And the sons of Korah, this this wasn't just some, you know, backwoods worship team. This was colleagues with David, songwriters for the people of God. Wow. This is some lament. And we discussed uh, the first week, the five aspects of lament, the five steps of lament, the five stages of lament and for review, they are these. The address, the complaint, the request, the motivation, and the confidence. You know, the address is who you're talking to. The complaint is what you bring bringing. What do you have to say? The request is what do you want? The motivation is on what basis are you asking for this? And the confidence is... Well, do you have faith in this person? This psalm contains each of those aspects, although they're hard to see. 14 out of 18 verses are complaint, completely, utterly, just 100% complaint. The other four verses kind of strewn throughout, and especially the first couple, subtly hint at each of those other aspects. And just like in Psalm forty-two, forty-three that we looked at two weeks ago, we need to remember that this psalm is a song. You know, Originally, it was written, as you can see, to the choir master, to the worship director, to the leader of the singing of Israel. It's a song. And so it has a pretty obvious structure to it. Basically, there are three verses, just like Psalm 42, 43. There's not a legit chorus like there was in Psalm 42, but there's definitely three verses to this song, and they're each set off by the three addresses to God. Verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation. Verse 9, Every day I call upon you, O Lord. And verse 13, But I, O Lord, cry out to you. Each of the verses are set off with an address to God. So there's not a a chorus that you can repeat like, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet again praise Him, my Savior and my God. But there is a repeated action, which is prayer. And we need to pay attention to this repeated action because There's so much complaint in this psalm that we need to pay attention to any hint of faith that we can find. Any measure of confidence in God we need to look for because it's not easy to see. There are very few, if any, confident statements of faith in God in this psalm. In the face of difficulty, He-Man the Ezraite, he's not just slapping a smile on and saying, God is good. All the time. (laughs) He's not just repeating that to himself over and over to try and get himself back to that place. Instead, what we find is he is embodying his faith. I'll show you what I mean. Despite feeling forsaken by God because of his circumstances, he prays day and night. There in verse 1. Despite feeling forsaken by God because he sees no light at the end of this tunnel, he prays every day with his hands spread out before God. In verse 9. And despite feeling forsaken by God because he is hearing no answers to his legitimate questions, he brings his prayer to God every morning in verse 13. And what is his assumption? What is his belief? It is that God actually hears him. Even in the midst of accusing God, of harming him, even in the midst of accusing God of rejecting him, of pouring out wrath on him, he continues to pray day in and day out. This is not a flowery faith. This is not an everything's buttoned up faith. This is faith embodied. He's not speaking it because he's not feeling it, but he's doing it. This is faith in action. So the first nine verses, we see him feeling forsaken by God in circumstance. Let's look at him again. Verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me, You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Verse 1. That's the verse 1 of the song. And we find in verse 1 of the psalm here, the foundation of the songwriter's faith. He says, O Lord. And all of your Bibles say Lord, but it's actually the word Yahweh. This is the personal name of God. The self-revealed name of God that God gave to the Israelites. And this is important because every time you hear the personal name of God used in Scripture, what they want you to think about is His character. What is Yahweh like? He revealed it. What does He say? He revealed it to Moses on Mount Sinai and He called Himself Yahweh, a God, merciful And gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast or faithful love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's God. That's his character. That's who he is. He, man, the Ezraite, prays to the God who claims to abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. But then what does he do? In verse 11, he turns that around on God and starts pointing his finger and he says, Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon or place of destruction? this songwriter is clearly wrestling with the character of God. Is God really loving? Is God really faithful? He's asking the basic questions of lament. God, where are you? And God, if you're a God of love, how could you let this happen? And so in the first two verses, the intro of this song we find basically all the other categories and aspects of lament all crammed together. The address. Who is he lamenting to? Yahweh. The request. What does he want? Pretty simple. Verse 2. All he wants is that his prayer would come before God. That's it. That's all he wants. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Just listen to me for a second. That's all I want. Notice he doesn't ask for rescue from illness. He doesn't ask for rescue from isolation. He just says, please just hear me out. And then what's his motivation? Why should God act? Well, isn't this Yahweh? The God of steadfast love and faithfulness? The God of his salvation? And then what is his confidence? It's just just barely hinted at. But it's in the opening line. The God of my salvation. So it must be his understanding that deep down, there is an eventual salvation. There, There is a reality that God will rescue him ultimately, but it just doesn't feel that way right now. So pretty much every word in the rest of the psalm is complaint. You know, he got all the other aspects out of the way and then he just wants to, he just wants to let God have it. He's wrestling with the salvation that God is supposed to provide, but it feels far off from his actual experience of life. You know, isn't the good life with God supposed to be good? Right? Isn't, Life walking with the creator supposed to be a good life. Instead though his life is going the opposite direction of good. He wants to experience the god of abundant life, but he is experiencing a living death. In verses 3 to 5, we basically see him just spiraling downward. And we aren't given a ton of specifics of what's going on in his life. But we find out in verse 15, he's been experiencing lifelong, chronic, serious, and terminal illness. He says, afflicted and close to death from my youth up. You know, I've been facing my own reality of death since I, since I can't remember. I can't remember the last time I didn't feel like I was about to die. That's this guy's lot. And then in verse 8 and 18, we discover that perhaps due to his long bout with physical illness, he's basically lost all of his relationships. He says, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. You know, people look at me and they just see, ugh, there's the sick guy. There's the complainer. There's the, the guy who just, he's just needy all the time. And so he's isolated. He's at death's door and he's alone. So it's no wonder that he starts pointing his finger at God. In verses 6 through 8, he says, You have put me in the depths of the pit. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You have caused my companions to shun me. You did it. God I know how powerful you are. I know you're the sovereign of the universe. So you could have have kept these things from happening. I know you could have. You did this to me. His circumstances are telling him a story and God is the villain. He feels like God has cut him off. Now if you remember from God's self-revelation of who he is, that not only is he the god who forgives for thousands of generations forgiving iniquity and cleansing from sin but he also says doesn't clear the guilty and so maybe this psalmist is reflecting on that character and finding himself maybe maybe i'm maybe i'm cut off from god maybe he's condemned me maybe i'm guilty and i don't have forgiveness Yahweh, the God of my salvation, am I actually in the guilty category? Have you just not cleared me and so you've put me with the wicked? Is that why it feels as if your wrath is on me? Is that why you've put me in these circumstances? Because I'm condemned? He says, I might as well be dead for all the good my faith in God is doing me. I am in a deep, dark cavern of death, drowning in what either God has done himself or allowed in my life. I'm shunned by other people, isolated, locked inside a dungeon of illness, depression, and isolation, and I can't even see the light. That is some spiral. I mean, you don't get any more bottomed out than this. And so it really is surprising where he turns next really surprising. We find him turn not to praise, but back towards prayer. We don't hear the confidence in his voice, but we see it in action. In verse 9, starting the second verse of this song, forsaken and losing hope, he says, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do, you, do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? So just when he is at his lowest point, when he's at the absolute bottom, he returns to prayer. He returns to prayer to the same God, the personal name of God, O Yahweh. And we see that he is desperate. His body shows it. His hands are spread wide. I'm completely and utterly undone, God. I call upon you for rescue, O Lord. We don't see a confident statement of trust, but we see a clinging for dear life. He's hanging on by a thread, but he's hanging on. So, so far he's been making complaints and even pointing the finger at God, but now the questions start to bubble over. They aren't curious questions. They're rhetorical questions. They're accusatory questions. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? The assumed answer in his mind is no. Dead people don't get to see the glories of God. Dead people don't get to see their prayers answered. Dead people don't get to see the goodness and graciousness and beauty of God. So God, why are you sending me in that direction? His hope is fading. He's not foreseeing that things are going to get any better, and so he lets God have it. Unfiltered, frustrated questions. Meditation on the character of God has him feeling as if he's missing out on it. It's like he says, Don't you want me to experience the good parts of you? Then why is my life spiraling towards death and destruction? The reason he's still here, the reason he turned back to prayer at the end of his bottoming out is because this God is his only hope. Over there in Sheol, in the place of destruction, in the pit, whatever you want to name it, these are all synonyms for the place where people don't get God. He says, that's, that's, no, that's no end for me. I don't want that. I want you. And so I am going to hang on even though it feels like that's where you're sending me. And if he can't experience this character of this God, then there's really no other hope. But even though he doesn't see a light at the end of this tunnel, he continues calling out to God every day. Arms spread wide, desperate, and waiting. And again, he turns back. Verse 13 we, f- we get the final verse of this song, Forsaken and No Answer. He says, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. It's a little bit hard to translate. So that last line could be a number of things. This says, My companions have become darkness. Another translation could say, Darkness has become my only companion. And another one says, and I think this is what it literally says, is, You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me, my companions. O oh, darkness. <laughs> o oh, darkness. He's not dead yet. He's close. But in verse 13, he another hint of faith comes back. Another hint of faith is embedded in his prayer posture. Remember, he hasn't actually made many requests of God in this in this song. Mainly it's just been venting. But back in verse 2, he did make a request. He said, let my prayer come before you and hear me out. That was his prayer. That was his request. If he was in a circle and people said, what's your prayer request? He would have said, I want God to hear my prayer. That's it. And so notice here, the whisper of an answered prayer. He asked God for his prayer to come before him. And here in verse 13, we find that every morning, his prayers do indeed come before God. He says, in the morning, my prayer comes before you even after this bottoming out, even after me feeling like there is no light at the end of this tunnel, I still know, I still know my prayers are going to God. The one thing he asked for, he has received. And what is it? It's a hearing. Despite his circumstances, despite his lack of hope, he has access. His prayers matter. And so he acts on that. And, so he, and then he, he gets a, sec, a third wind <laughs> and now begins to ask real questions and seek real answers from God. In verse 14, he says, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? If God is really listening and if my prayers really come before him every morning, perhaps he'll help me at least understand the why behind my circumstances. Maybe he'll help me understand the reason I'm going through this horrible, horrible, horrible life. But the bummer is, like Job, he doesn't get the answers. There's no answers there. Instead, we find the same spiraling trajectory that we heard before. Illness, despair, feeling forsaken by God, isolation. His questions are left unanswered. It's a cliffhanger. There's no verse 19. What do we do with this breaking bad level darkness? I want to point us back to the structure of this psalm. You know, each verse of this three-verse song began with two things. Prayer and the personal name of God. Here's my suggestion. Instead of wishing there was resolution to the circumstances of this songwriter, we can actually just take a cue from him. The very fact that he feels safe enough To voice these complaints to the God who created the universe is instructive for us. He was secure enough in his relationship with God to speak bluntly. His honesty, his vulnerability, his raw feeling stems from this intimacy. It doesn't reveal a lack of intimacy. Because Yahweh is the God of his salvation, he can be completely open and honest with all of himself, all of his dark thoughts, all of his feelings, everything, everything. You can let God into every single nook and cranny of your life, and he won't condemn you. It's the reverse. He wants in. And he will transform you from the inside out. If we welcome him into every area that's dark, that's shameful, that's embarrassing, what happens? The God who said, let there be light, brings light. That's the kind of a God He-Man the Ezraite worshiped. And God remains present and listening. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to experience the happy ending that you long for in this life. But it does mean there just might be a God worth clinging to, even amidst unthinkable tragedies. I'm only 33 years old and I have not experienced the type of tragedy that would elicit this. But I've known people who have. And to see them remain in a posture of no answers, no pasted on smile, but clinging for dear life to a God that they trust will ultimately bring salvation Wow. How instructive is that? This psalm, Psalm 88, is inspired scripture. This is the word of God. Isn't that amazing? This song that's full of words directed in anger at God is God's word to us. Instructive for the types of words we can say to God when we need to. But that's not the only reason they are God's word. When God the Son took on flesh in order to bear our sin upon Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, when He did that, lament became a primary language that He used to process the brokenness of the human condition, the brokenness of the world that he had made. The author of the book of Hebrews says that in the days of his flesh, basically in the human lifetime of Jesus Christ, who had been preexistent eternally with God the Father, but who came and became a man on our behalf, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, it says, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus lamented. How much more do we need to? Jesus, who from eternity past was in the bosom of the Father, who knew the character of God firsthand, he had to process with these words the character of God as a man, having become a part of the brokenness of creation. Jesus prayed a lament similar to Psalm 88 while he was hanging on the cross. He uttered the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's just the opening line of that psalm. Jesus is final, but not first, lament. And you can be sure that he had that entire psalm on his mind while he's hanging there in that dark moment. So, we're five weeks in. We're going to go ahead and turn to Psalm 22 as we end our study in our meditation on the Lament Psalms. So go ahead and turn there. Basically turn left a few pages, 20 or 30. Psalm 22. And just basically think of Jesus praying this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Jesus, the eternal Son of the living God, experienced the forsakenness. He went through it on our behalf. The forsakenness that we all deserve so that, in order that, we could be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. He has done it. It is finished. The work has been completed. If we are in Christ, we are safe and sound, adopted. And so, taking our cue from Jesus, we can share all, all, all of ourselves to God because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we know that God hears us. We can have confidence that our prayer comes before him, intact, fully honest, fully ourselves, fully human before him, and he's worth clinging to, come what may. Let's pray.